This show is made possible by our Patreon supporters. To get access to our exclusive content and support the show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. Thanks. Welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canastracy. Hello. This is episode number 46, and today we are speaking with Kenneth Brungis. Kenneth Brungis is an expert on Gold Rush era brass bands out in California. He is the founder of the Old Columbia Brass Band, the El Dorado Brass Band, and the Gold Rush Cornet Band. Kenneth is also the author of a book titled Gold Rush Maestro, the Journal of August Wetterman. Uh, you'll hear in the episode that August Wetterman is a brass band leader out in California during this Gold Rush era, which uh, Kenneth dates from 1850 to 1885. So we're really excited to share with you this kind of underground <laughs> era of early American brass band history. Definitely something that's not talked about as much as maybe the Civil War or British brass bands. We're very excited to get to share this with you today. Definitely, yeah. As Chris mentioned, this is a... Uh often overlooked part of brass band history in the United States, so we're excited to uh, to get it out to you. And as always, if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, we also have a Teespring store where you can buy some physical merch, as well as some of Chris's arrangements. And uh, we're on all social media platforms, so give us a follow over there. And you'll definitely want to subscribe to our YouTube channel as we're coming out with more episodes for season three. And for this episode, Make sure you take a look on the show notes because uh, Kenneth has a special deal for our listeners on uh, the book that Chris mentioned, as well as the featured album uh, for this CD. You can get kind of like a, a pack of three items for a discounted price. So make sure you go to our show notes page on our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. And I think it's time to roll the tape. Let's do it. This is episode 46 with Kenneth Brungis. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Kenneth Brungis, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and talk with us about the Gold Rush era brass bands out kind of in the West. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, I'm pleased to be here, and uh, thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Definitely. This is a really interesting area of American history that we're going to get to talk about today, and I'm really excited about it. It's not really a secret that the early American brass band is normally kind of like or centered 
on the Civil War and kind of highly concentrated along the East Coast. So I'm really excited to be able to dive in and share this history that I know a lot of people aren't familiar with. Can you give us a, a brief background on your musical upbringing and what got you interested in this area of brass band research? Well, it was almost a foregone conclusion that I would be involved with music, which I can recall, you know, age seven or eight, starting to sing in boy choirs, getting on the train and going a few miles north uh, as a kid with my little valise up to a town called Pottstown, which you may know is a, has a famous museum of brass instruments, trumpets, trumpet museum there now. And um, my mother was also a fan of Sousa. So we had a lot of original um, the 78s. We lived also very close to Willow Grove Park, which, uh, as you probably know, was uh, one of, after the, the Marine Corps band, was one of the places that uh, Sousa conducted, although we didn't see him. We went to concerts there. Uh, also, we visited Allentown which the famous Allentown band. So um, in spite of the fact that my mother was uh, kind of choral and uh, organ centric, um, she was very good about exposing me to a lot of bands. And then um, in the 50s, there was the, this wonderful, inspiring thing that happened on television. There was this guy named Leonard Bernstein, mm. not to be confused with Bernstein, not related, um, who made incredible use of a medium known as television. And in the 50s and into the 60s were the young people's concerts. And um, he was uh, Bernstein, generally known as Lenny to his friends, was not among them, uh, made incredible use of that medium as an educator, in addition to being a fine composer you know, and an incredible conductor, I became enamored with the idea that one could use an orchestra or an ensemble as their instrument. He was playing New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Hmm. And at some point in junior high school, I decided I wanted to be a conductor. That's kind of hard to do at, at, in junior high school. And so uh, I needed to learn to play an instrument. So I, I decided to play trumpet because that seemed to be the instrument that was a part of most of the ensembles, including jazz, which became a, a, a passion of mine, yeah, uh, seemed to be the instrument. And so um, that got me into the brass world. Was there the element of like music history or American history kind of an interest at the same time, or did that kind of develop out of your eventual research and interest in the, the Gold Rush era? I think, of course, as I mentioned before, you know, uh, again, thanks to my mother and all of those great recordings and some of those concerts that we went to, uh, even a place called Ringing Rocks, in Pennsylvania, which is another place where there were a lot of bands. You know, I went to a lot of band concerts and heard all that, but it wasn't until um, after having taught, having developed a really all-inclusive high school music program in Southern California, I got a grant to teach at UC Irvine and mm -hmm. developed the instrumental music programs 
there, I was fortunate to get a, a job at Columbia College, which was coincidentally in the right smack dab in the gold country, Sierra Foothills. Um, it was a brand new college. It was a an arts magnet humanities college, and uh, they wanted me to start the instrumental music program. Well, Columbia College was right next door to the most beautifully restored gold rush town known as Columbia, gem huh. of the Southern motherland. <laughs> One of the first things that I did and, and, and all the visitors do is we walked into their little museum and uh, encased in, in a couple, I saw an E-flat cornet, huh. a piston valve E-flat cornet. Mm-hmm. And then I saw a rotary valve. E flat cornet. And then I saw a piccolo, not a fife. I saw a couple Albert system clarinets. I saw a pouch that said CBB for Columbia Brass Band. Mm-hmm. I saw some part books. And all of a sudden, my, my heart's pounding. And I'm thinking, my goodness, they had, a, quote, a band. Yeah. Not realizing. That that was the proverbial tip of the iceberg, that there were a number of bands right in, in just that one town. Wow. Starting as early as, as 1850. Yeah. So that was the catalyst. That was the spark. And um, so that was 74. Well, America's Bicentennial was already looming. Mm-hmm. Um, I really started getting interested in this, I started doing some cursory research, got a number of grants. Of course, the college loved this. <laughs> you know, this was great publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, ultimately um, formed the, the first, it was my first uh, living music history project which was the Columbia Brass Band. Although I was pretty naive, unlike so many of your wonderful guests that you've had so far, that I've had a chance to see on your uh, YouTube channel. Um, I was still pretty ignorant about, not necessarily, well, yeah, the literature, but also some of the instrumentation. So I did sneak in some woodwinds. And, um, but that was as much political as anything else because they were players from my um, college, from my, my um, wind ensemble mm-hmm. that I wanted to include. Mm-hmm. But we, um, there's a company that you may have heard of uh, that's been around the second or third oldest uniform company in uh, existence is Ostwald Uniform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stanbury, I think, is the oldest. I wrote to them and I said, we want, I, and I sent a picture of the the old Columbia Brass Band uniform, which we have a picture of that maybe we can see later. Mm-hmm. And I said, we want to duplicate this. I don't have a lot of money, but I'm forming a band as part of a of, um, bicentennial project. Can you help me out? <laughs> Not only did they help me out, they duplicated it perfectly, wow. although uh, we, we went to a nice reddish 
color, which I don't believe was the original color. But they put on their bicentennial cover catalog. Oh, hey. And um, almost gave it to us for free, which, wow. of course, was really nice. And then that band, um, at the time, I was secretary treasurer of College Band Directors National Association. Mm-hmm. So when we had a, a big uh, conclave um, in Berkeley, I took the band there. And uh, in 76, you know, um, 1976, not a lot of people were doing living music history projects. And Ken Burns had not yet come out with the Civil War doc. And so that was really well received. And uh, by then I had those instruments that I mentioned that we, we saw in the museum. They were all restored. Wow. Uh, one was a, was a German, the, uh, the piston E-flat was a German-made instrument from um, probably the 1860s. But the rotary valve was a Czech horn from Czechoslovakian horn um, from around mid-1840s, I think. Wow. It's still there. We use that. Pretty good player. And uh, I, I realized a couple of the, of the original tunes. Professors during the Gold Rush era were like the town music teachers. And they composed original pieces. Your previous uh, guests, you know, we, we know about Peter's Saxhorn Journal and, and all of those books that everybody else, Port Royal Brass Band, and all, all of those great books that all the East Coast and Southeast uh, bands played. But a lot of these professors, as they were called, that had the brass bands and the gold rush also wrote original tunes. And uh, so I realized some of those uh, just based on a few parts that I had. You know, if I could get the two apart, if I could get the melody, um, I could often recreate those. Mm-hmm. And was that, the, so those were all pulled from the uh, the part books that you saw in the museum from the Columbia Brass Band? Yeah. Were those part books uh, complete? Or was it just kind of what you were just saying, like tuba and cornet yeah. melody? Unfortunately not. The closest I got to complete arrangements a very few, and this is a sad tale. The gold rush brought people from all over the world, as you can imagine. And they had different, they either brought their instruments with them or very quickly before the end of the 1850s were able to get instruments through music stores in either Sacramento or San Francisco. It, it happened very quickly. Of course, they had to go around the horn mm-hmm. on ships. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like uh, Amazon Prime <laughs> at months. But um, it's just like everything else in the gold rush. The people that made all the money during the gold rush were not the people that were out at the mines or uh, at, at the, you know, out with their gold pans. They were the merchants. They owned. They were the people that bought up land. Who eventually were the people that financed the uh, the railroad. Uh, they were the, the they were the people that ended up making all the money. So you know they saw the possibilities for things. 
and music stores made an incredible amount of money. So they, they had music, sheet music, instruments, etc. But there was one family, there was a little village and enclave called Soulsbyville. Um, it was named after a, a, a family, and these were Cornish miners that came from Cornwall, England. And after the, uh, they had pretty much played out the rivers and creeks, and they were unfortunately raping the hillsides with these hydraulic hoses that were, and unfortunately you can still see it today around Columbia, Sonora, and various parts of the motherload, hmm. just ravaged these hillsides to, to try to get out gold um, that way. Uh, they went to the deep shaft mining. Well, who better to do that kind of mining than people who were miners in Cornwall, England? So they came over. They also, um, as a couple of your previous guests have, have mentioned, had a big brass band tradition uh, in Great Britain. Uh, the miners' bands, very popular. Factory bands, very popular. Contests, one of your guests mentioned a couple of times, very popular still to today. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a national contest that is held uh, every year at Royal Albert Hall uh, with the best of these bands. You know, the Black Dyke Mills Band is one of the ones that's very famous. Well, this goes back, you know, a couple centuries. So there were two families in Soulsby Bill that were both very musical. And uh, the Nichols and the Burdens, B-U-R-D-E-N-S. Uh, by the way, I did, um, from photographs that I found in Columbia, a lot of them had the names of people on who were in the picture in the back. And I went and, and found some of those families that were still in and around Columbia and Sonora and interviewed them, mm. taped interviews. Wow find out about music. Anyway, this one, these two families still had some music from the brass bands, which were no longer in existence, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But the one holy grail that I hoped to find, they, the Burden, Burdens and the Nichols combined to have the Soulsby Bill brass band, which also had a marvelous uniform, by the way. Nice. <laughs> participated in the yearly in the 1850s and 60s there was a yearly brass band competition by the way in that area and the winner it was held in groveland which is over toward yosemite and the winner got this beautiful banner which they got to keep every year for a year and um, so they had this marvelous uniform i had pictures etc well, so I went and interviewed some folks that were in their 80s and 90s of both families. And I said, you know, I'm really looking for some of this music because I have this historic band and can you help me out? And Mrs. Nichols said, oh, you know, she's in her, you got a picture of this because it was so iconic. And she's in the front of her old wood frame home. And she's rocking away and she's like, well, Professor Brandon, let me say, she says, oh, I can remember so-and-so and so-and-so, and, and he was the last band director, the band leader, or whatever she called him. And when he died, 
there was no money left and to do the band. So uh, we put all of his belongings and all his clothes and they threw all that music and burned it all up on a funeral pyre. Yikes. Wow. So here was, Lord knows how much original brass band music that they saw no value in because there was nobody. And I guess that would have been maybe in the 30s. Mm. Yeah, man. 40s that she remembered. She was wow. much younger then. But she remembered them burning all his stuff, including all this music. And I wanted to cry. Yeah. Yeah, and, that's rough. Oh, man. Um, that's very tough. But, uh, you know, that's what happened. And then a lot of, a lot of it because of wood frame buildings in that area. And that's true of Sacramento and even of San Francisco. Many fires. And a, a lot of it was lost. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's unfortunate. So, um, yeah. So, with with your research, with finding the the repertoire that you were able to find and stuff, were you able to kind of pinpoint what the standard instrumentation was for bands of that period? Because I know, like, you're mentioning that they had competitions like the British did or do, and like we do uh, currently have here. But I know on the East Coast, those brass bands weren't so uh, uniform and standardized with like numbers of uh, musicians like the the british competitions are so were you able to find what the the california instrumentation was just based on on what i've seen in the photographs and they seem to be anywhere from you know 15 to 17 to, to 23 players usually a couple e flat cornets i have seen some key bugles but mostly piston or rotary valve E-flats, B-flats, tenor horns. Um, Again, mainly because the the photographs are not that clear. Um, Tubas, at least two or three tubas. Uh, Alto horns, definitely. Um, But, you know, moderate-sized groups because I'm sure this is true. I know this is true uh, based on um, um, oh, the uh, Homespun America, uh, Hunsberger's wonderful uh, box set where uh, part of that is Civil War era. Uh, all of that music was used for dancing. Yeah. You have part of that rec- recording is social orchestra music. So these bands were not just always uh, used for military and, and civic uh, holiday celebrations. They were also dance bands. And, yeah, good point. Um, in the gold rush era, yes, they were associated with militia. And... Um, one one of the things that I, I know you're interested in was civil war, which and yes, there was a lot of activity here during the civil war, believe it or not. But that's a, another topic. But these bands played more for dances and balls, uh, but they had a completely different uniform, as I suspect was the case with the East Coast and Southeast bands, for their militia uh, or their military 
responsibilities. So it's a chicken or the egg kind of thing. They had a, a dual role and they often had completely different repertoire. Um, and um, as is the case with the uh, Hunsberger Homespun America, you know, you get to hear, for example, a young Alan Vizzuti on those um, uh, social orchestra recordings, you know. Uh, Unfortunately, not on period instruments, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not on period instruments, which is as I learned more because I was so ignorant about this stuff. You know, finally, when I got to put together the Gold Rush Cornet Band, which was, you know, made up of all professional players, which that was 93 and 94, uh, with, you know, a lot of Rob Stewart's collection, and you've interviewed Rob a couple of times, uh, Bill Reichenbach, some of his instruments, Les Benedict, some of his instruments. You know, these were LA studio players, Steve Sharpie was, you know, the guy, one of the guys that put this concept together. Steve also went on after we stopped doing the band, uh, did a number of, of recordings on Key Bugle, an instrument that Rob built for him. But those, that recording, which you guys have, the Gold Rush Cornet Band, those were all original instruments. And the difference in the sound and the later research that I did where I actually found in um, the uh, Eleanor McClatchy music collection in Sacramento, where I found original music, finally, uh, complete scores. And then to hear them for me was such a revelation, something that you're used to, you know, you guys are used to that. You've had guests on that have, that know that stuff, that have their collections. You've been playing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. With me until 1993 and getting that band together and, and um, putting those scores together and to actually hear that sound, it's, it's glorious. I never <laughs> kind of thought of it that way that, you know, <laughs> for Chris and I, all these albums are out here now and we're able to go hear, you know, years and years and years of research and hard work, you know, in the form of a CD that people like yourself have put together. <laughs> so that's, I've never quite thought of it that way. Um, so that's, that's neat. I, I did have one question to kind of just pull back a little bit, maybe, maybe zoom out. We, we talked, you were just mentioning how uh, these bands out in California played for, they, they did have some kind of militia duties, but they also, you know, played a lot of civilian balls and, and things where mm -hmm. in all your research, were you able to determine like kind of who these musicians were? Like were these bands made up of minors or, you know, people who came out, you know, to, to maybe capitalize on some of those business opportunities during the gold rush or who, who were in these bands, if you were able to find that out. I think initially for the most part, everybody came out to find gold. And there were, you know, there are books and books. I have a, a whole library here, which you can't see, of books about people who were disappointed, but then ultimately saw other possibilities um, and opened mercantiles 
you know, well, w- what were like general stores mm-hmm. or um, um, restaurants. Um, there were, there was a, a, a very um, well-known um, enterprise that opened up tent uh, like hostels up by the diggings where people could come in and get a decent meal, bathe. Um, uh, they had cots, you know, um, there were um, uh, pop-up bars up in the diggings. I mean, you know, people, you know, Yankee ingenuity uh, was rampant and uh, it was, you know, the landowners like, uh, Stanford and all these these guys, the big four, I can't remember who all the big four were now, it's up in my library, who put together the, um, the, the all the money for the railroad, the Transcontinental Railway. One of the pieces on my CD, in fact, is, was uh, about that, which we recorded. Uh, but yeah, they came from all walks of life, but originally they all came here to, to strike it rich. But um, very few did. You know, there were tales about, and they were all exaggerated, but some of them they were true. You know, a farmer out plowing land and found a, a, a rock-sized nugget of gold mm-hmm. as he was tilling the land, you know, and there are pictures of some of those. You know, they were just everyday people. They were, they were actual miners' bands that I know of. Um, and in the Wetterman, in my book, the Journal of August Wetterman, it's, it, it's titled uh, Gold Rush Maestro, the Journal of August Wetterman. You know, he was a conservatory uh, trained professional musician who came around the horn specifically to play professionally in San Francisco and Sacramento with some of his cronies from the Swedish conservatory because that's where the money was and he played and there were by the 1860s there were operas coming in from Europe from New York from Australia he was playing opera orchestras he has a famous quote about uh, playing in a, in a famous circus band that uh, the Lee and Marshall circus band and, uh, you know, some of his buddies and some of the tales that he talks about, some of his gigs uh, sound very uh, similar to some of the gigs that people, some of the gigs and talks about playing uh, three times during the 4th of July and coming home after the last one and his, and his lip hanging down, <laughs> You know, things that some of us experienced, but they were, you know, there were some professionals like him, but most of them were just average people who were part-time musicians. As I said, a lot of theater, though. There was a tremendous amount of theater. identify that gold rush brass bands you know weren't necessarily brass bands that were like 
playing in the field while people were searching the gold for gold kind of like in a way that that like uh bands were playing during fighting during the civil war or something but i do know um that maybe this is a loose generalization you can maybe help refine this a little bit but my understanding is that uh in california and in the west that you know that there's these kind of gold rush era bands but then the other term that i'm familiar with are like cowboy bands or cowboy brass bands would there be a distinction between those or are those just different or are those just brass bands that had different like functions but they all kind of got out there for the same same reason initially well the cowboy bands are just show bands you know um, you know, uh, we actually did the, the Gold Rush Cornet Band actually played at the Gene Autry Museum. Uh, that was after uh, our, the end of our tour, second time we went to the Great American Brass Band Festival. Uh, you know, we got a chance to see, you know, the Wild Bill Hickok uh, exhibit and some of their, uh, from their band and you know, uh, some of the displays and instruments and the big bass drum and all that stuff. But those were show bands. Um, the uh, Gold Rush bands were really, I don't think any different in function than uh, what you had in the East or the Southeast. I mean, I can really quickly give you an example of, of what, of what they did. Yeah, please, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. In the spring of, if you bear with me, in the spring of 1851, so this is just very early, the Columbia Brass Band, along with 6,000 to 8,000 men, escorted the first woman they had seen in months into their gaily decorated town. So, you know, that was a big deal. They hadn't seen a woman. And what she was doing there, we don't know. In 1855, August Wetterman, who is the subject of my book, a transplanted Swedish bandmaster, was hired to lead the band of Leah Marshall Circus, which toured the mining camps twice that year. And then it was Wetterman that formed the Sacramento Union Brass Band in 1856. In 1857, still early, the Columbia Brass Band led the May Day procession to Coles Ranch near Sonora, and later the Sonora German Brass Band. See, they make these designations because the band's had people made up from different countries, ergo different literature too, right? We had Italian bands, we had German bands, we had the Soulsby Bill band, that was the British brass band, you know, so they had different literature too. So the Columbia, 1857 Columbia Brass Band led the May Day procession to Coles Ranch near Sonora and later the Sonora German Brass Band under, under the direction of Professor Schmitz performed a concert with the Sonora Glee Club. Afterwards, a ball began at 6 p.m. and continued until 4 o'clock in the morning. In November 1858, Faxon's Sonora Band and the Columbia Brass Band led a procession in celebration of the opening of the floodgates of the New High Flume. It was entitled A Grand Water Celebration. The latter played for ceremonies at the end of the procession. The Sacramento Union Brass Band, this was Wetterman's band, performed in San Francisco in 1858 for the celebration in honor of the laying of the Atlantic cable when Queen Victoria sent the first message over the cable to President James Buchanan. In 1863, the Tuolumne Courier mentions the Columbia Cornet bands performing Mozart, Beethoven, and Rossini with great fidelity. See, we're talking about a 30-mile radius 
in the southern mother lobe. And I've already mentioned five or six or seven different brass bands existing in one small area. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. Yeah, it seems like a lot of similar type of things that uh, other bands that you know we're familiar with would do. You know, similar town functions. Seems like they were an important and and source of pride uh, for the, the towns and and for the surrounding area. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, except that instead of being in a an environment which you know has a history that goes back to the revolution and before everything there was brand new and it was almost a utopian society because there was a lot of it was lawless so it was a really wild and woolly time but every little town i mean people did the best they could and and the brass bands were literally and and there's a quote in here from um, Mark Twain from when he was there from his book, Roughing It, where he said it was brass bands were one of the first indications of civilization. Well, there you, Coming, you know, some sense of culture. I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of the the repertoire also that you were that you've been talking about this whole time and stuff something kind of that you and i talked about on the phone a few weeks ago when when we first talked uh you mentioned the repurposing of certain tunes and certain composers specifically foster and some minstrel songs can you maybe talk to that a little bit yeah stephen foster was in the 1850s a, a super rock star and his tunes were you know everybody knew them everybody sang them you know they played them on the piano in their parlors you know if you had a guitar or a mando or if you had a banjo you know but during the gold rush a couple of these tunes like camp town races races and old susanna they um substituted gold rush specific lyrics to them. That's uh, that's a. I took that from a 1984 
vinyl recording by the El Dorado Brass Band that I co-led with a fellow, a wonderful human being, the late Captain Ray Hicks, who knew more about military band music than anybody on the planet. And unfortunately, he left us, oh, it's been about 15 years ago. But he started the old Arizona Brass Band, which you may not be familiar with. But Ray Hicks was an, an incredible guy, and he was the one that was playing some of that E-flat stuff you heard on there. But we did this recording um, in 84. That was, of course, Old Susanna. But the substitute lyrics are, I sailed from Salem, Salem City with a washbowl on my knee. I'm going to California, the gold dust for to sea. It rained all night. The day I left the weather, it was dry. The sun's so hot, I froze to death. Oh, brothers, don't you cry. Oh, California, that's the land for me. I'm going to San Francisco with a washbowl on my knee. I'll soon be in old Frisco, and there I'll look around. And when I find the gold lumps there, I'll pick them off the ground. I'll scrap the mountains clean, my boys. I'll drain the rivers dry. A pocket full of rocks bring home. Oh, brothers, don't you cry. The thing that's super interesting to me about that is that, you know, on on the East Coast and when we're dealing with the Civil War, you know, there a lot of the music, you know, has some uh, questionable backgrounds and some some difficult conversations, you know, important ones that need to be had, but definitely some some difficult topics uh, surrounding the origin of a lot of music. And Stephen Foster's, you know, music is, you know, usually front and center. It's Stephen Foster and Dixie are like the two things that we always have to kind of confront. So the the thing that's super interesting to me about Oh Susanna is that that's a Stephen Foster tune that we know was arranged now for a band of that period. You know, obviously we have the the brass band journal, the uh, the Friedrich, which is a lot of uh, Stephen Foster brass band stuff too. But Oh Susanna, oh, yeah. uh, you know, being a Foster band piece, where yes, the melody was still written by Foster for the use, you know, in minstrel shows, but it's kind of been like reappropriated by the the gold rush seekers out in california and kind of gave it new meaning with that same popular melody that everybody recognizes yeah i mean it's it's that you know whole argument of can you can you separate you know what something was originally for from the things it was eventually transformed into and i think this is a this is an example of like in the civil war there are examples of tunes that the confederacy put their own lyrics to for their cause and i would argue that you know well not argue but it's very clear like this is an example of that kind of working the other way where it started in a in you know for use in a minstrel show and then was changed to something much much less harmful <laughs> i guess <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah. I would rather it work that way than than the other way there were also some lyrics that were not to my mind, acceptable <laughs> sure, for everybody. But uh, also along those lines, even before and during and after the Civil War, there was a, a, it was a pretty integrated, the Gold Rush Society was pretty integrated. There were a number of, of Black musicians in amongst the brass bands, and I have pictures of those which I found interesting. I have not been able to identify them, but 
that to me would indicate, I guess for better, we call them African-Americans in that society that were very much accepted. They were out there in amongst the miners and um, some of them were even merchants and um, just accepted along with everybody else in this almost utopian society. So these California Gold Rush bands were out, you know, in California during the Civil War, uh, and a lot, you know, we the Civil War mainly took place on the on the East Coast. Um, what was their activity like during during the Civil War? How were they involved? Well, that's a, a very good question because you wouldn't think, that because of where we were situated geographically, that there would be much at all, but. Um, there was, um, uh, there were a couple major uh, U.S. Uh, military installations. One was at Alcatraz before it became uh, the famous federal prison. It actually was a Civil War prison, which is now beneath uh, the existing federal prison, and. Um, Fort Point, which is um, close to the present day San Francisco Marina, there was um, an installation that had a band. And in fact, uh, my uh, book subject, uh, August Wetterman, had some association there uh, as a part-time substitute conductor. But the main thing was that the Golden Gate, not the bridge. A lot of people, when they think about the Golden Gate, they obviously think of the bridge, but the Golden Gate was the name of the entrance to the bay, which was also a very treacherous entrance. Hmm. And that had to be protected because um, California, or at least the North was very pro-Union. Uh, LA, by the way, was, was Confederate. <laughs> was pro-South, but um, because of all the gold, very early on, troops were sent uh, to uh, Fort Point and Alcatraz and the Presidio, which has been an installation. Now it is, it is no longer inhabited, but the Presidio through World War One, World War II, was uh, U.S. Uh, troops were stationed there. But the funny story is, in addition to having one or two bands, uh, military, U.S. military bands there, there were gunnery installations placed in the hills, in the headlands, in an effort to do a triangulation to prevent any uh, Confederate uh, ships to come into the bay. And the story is that they had, this was a very scientific attempt, the way they had this these guns triangulated to make sure that no 
Confederate ships could ever get into the bay. And uh, they even put out a decoy boats in the bay and they tried and they could never ever sink the decoy. <laughs> and they, by the way, the, where those were now, they have been replaced during World War II and after in the Cold War with Nike missile installations are there. <laughs> They're no longer there, but that's, they were replaced eventually with Nike missile insulation. But in fact, uh, there was quite a bit of, of civil war activity there, uh, but mainly because, uh, you know, the Confederates would have liked to have gotten a hold of all of that gold and been able to control because millions of dollars were going out of there uh, in ships and of course overland uh, too, but mainly uh, ships going around the horn, et cetera. So hmm. that's that story. The Alvarado Brass Band became the resident brass band of Old Sacramento, which is a, a, a beautiful, restored town, very commercial, unfortunately now. But um, when I moved to Sacramento in 83, this was on leave from uh, teaching at Humboldt State, uh, ostensibly to do work on my doctorate. I received a number of grants to gain access to the Sacramento Museum and History uh, Division's archives. Within those archives was a, I got special permission, which took a lot of doing to um, get access to the Eleanor McClatchy music collection or her California collection. Within that was an amazing music collection, which is where I discovered uh, both the uh, original published versions of the Wetterman Journal, as well as all kinds of, of his notes and letters, which was for me an incredible gold mine. No one knew about it. There had been, I had seen some references to it in other places, but she had the real deal. And these um, uh, uh, scores or score reductions, not just piano pieces, but actual score reductions where say piccolo or indicate actual reductions, three line score reductions from which I then realized the arrangements that are on the CD, you know, the tunes like the Hank Monk Schottisch, the Railroad Gallop, which I had mentioned in my reading earlier by Gungle, the Flood Mazurka, 
which is an incredible piece of music. Um, very programmatic. Sounds like the flood is coming. Oh, uh, the Sacramento City Guards Quick Step, which is actually Wetterman's own composition he wrote for his own band, which is really a delightful and, and really shows his European uh, sensibilities or roots. All of those I discovered within her collection and um, some others. So that was really a, a, a gold, my own personal Eureka, I found it gold by. I published some articles. I got a grant from City Arts. I got a grant from the state. I got a grant from the uh, Sacramento Merchants. And most important, the now defunct uh, Musicians Union Recording Trust Fund, which allowed us to uh, put the El Dorado Brass Band on a performance situation where the grant paid uh, 51%. And the Musicians Union Trust Fund paid 48% of our salary for weekly concerts in Old Sacramento. Hmm. There you go. That no longer exists, uh, but it was great for a year or so. And, you know, the grant also paid for uniforms. Ray Hicks, the gentleman, the late Conrad Ray Hicks, already had a Civil War recreation band through the National Guard prior to my coming. Hmm. I came there wanting to form a town band as the one I was subscribing. He and I joined forces. So as was the case with most of these bands, we had a Civil War, typical standard Civil War issue uniform with kepis, you know, the whole thing with the yeah. issue. And we had a town band uniform, which we wore for the um, uh, for the Musicians Union Trust Fund gigs, the grant gigs, which was a, a completely different thing. We did for Ray's gigs, we did uh, Civil War reenactment stuff in various places. You know, it was, I guess, like, other bands in the East Coast and the Southeast, you, you had two uniforms. You did two, maybe two different types of gigs. I'm sure you have Civil War reenactment stuff in the East Coast and the Southeast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Ray and I didn't always uh, agree. You know, we had these chicken and egg arguments. I was always of the opinion that the town bands came first. And that the uh, they were conscripted or the, they were asked to be a part of the militia as a patriotic duty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but anyway, we did Chautauquas, uh, we did balls in both uniforms. You know, we had some beautiful old halls and theaters that were reconstructed and, and with people dressed up in Victorian uniforms. Oh my God, they, you know, I have some pictures you know, it looks like something out of out of a Ken Burns documentary. I mean, they were beautiful. I mean, and and playing these guys, I guess, were pretty versatile. I don't know how typical that was, but apparently there were people out here during the gold rush that were versatile enough. So, you know, um, on a break, they would pick up a different instrument and play 
social orchestra stuff while the brass, the other brass guys were resting their chops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know that uh, Francis Johnson, a lot of his bands uh, or or groups that he was, uh, he was leading in Philadelphia before the civil war did that. And I think uh, Sue Kinney, who did a lot of research on the Manchester Oh, yeah. they I think she mentioned that they they did that as well I so I I think that was maybe not you know every band did that but I think that was a pretty common practice like you're saying it just made them more versatile and they were able to uh, take more gigs <laughs> and also not murder their faces <laughs> so yeah, no, like, yeah. God, Bill Day, John Connors like they do that with their band you know they they try to do the the string half and the band half when they can mm-hmm. so yeah, that tradition's being kept alive as well. Segwaying into, you know, the Gold Rush Coronet Band, somehow uh, around 1993, a guy named Stephen Sharpie, spelled C-H-A-R-P-I-E, soloist with the Disneyland Band. You know, that used to be the cream of the crop. You know, a lot of studio players were in that band, as was Steve Sharpie. And he and um, Les Benedict, who is also a studio player, who used to, by the way, be the solo euphonium and E-flat alto player with um, Mr. Jack Daniels' Silver Cornet Band. Hmm. They found out about the research that I had done in, the, um, in Sacramento with, it must have been an article or something that they read, and that I had found original Gold Rush music, but had never recorded it. And um, long story short, we got together in LA and they said, well, you know, we like, we've got all of these between us and this guy named Rob Stewart, we got these old instruments. We would like to put this together with your music. Plus there's this guy named Bill Reichenbach. Now I'd heard of Bill Reichenbach, you know, mm-hmm. with the greatest bass trombone studio bass trombone player, you know, alive today, one of the best ever, who is a super arranger who will write a bunch of other stuff for us in the, you know, in the same era, same idea. Mm-hmm. And then we went, there's this thing called the Great American Brass Band Festival. We'd like to go there. And we have contacts there because there's never been a band from the West Coast there. And there's certainly never been a Gold Rush band. And they never even knew, that most of those people there never even knew there was a Gold Rush there were gold rush bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, you definitely overlooked for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So that's kind of how that came about. So I had already made these scores and I sent them down to Reichenbach and he liked them. He made a few changes here and there because he was playing uh different too, but he made, you know, but 
And that was before I owned Finale. That was before I owned Sibelius. You know, so these were all handwritten stuff. And so they handpicked 17 players. I had nothing to do with that. And so we started rehearsing at Rob Stewart's, in Rob Stewart's shop. And uh, I was playing uh, first cornet, I guess. I don't remember now. The first rehearsal, and I think uh, Rob was playing off a climb on the stuff. And my God, I started to cry. I mean, I had tears. I had tears streaming as I was playing. I had tears streaming down my, my, my cheeks. Because, you know, I mean, I'd been, I'd gone through this stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit weird right now. <laughs> you know, I'd gone through this stuff. I'd found it, you know, I'd orchestrated, but it was almost kind of like giving birth. Yeah. And then actually hearing with the instruments. I mean, I, I, I can't explain what it was like. And of course, all these cats played it flawlessly read it. I had some pretty good players and I was a college and university conductor. I had had good students, but hell, not like this. Mm -hmm. Long story short, we got accepted. We, yeah, we sent a demo. We got accepted like that. We got on the main stage Saturday night. I did a, um, a talk for the Sonic Society on the Friday. They were not receptive, by the way. You know, they just didn't want to ex accept the fact that there was anything happening west of the Mississippi in spite of what I showed them. And I had graphics and but uh, got through it, you know, basically a presentation. But we just knocked them dead Saturday night and just blew them away and um, got asked back the next year. So we went back 94. We did short. Uh, well, we did the recording before 94 and came back and uh, that was before CDs. So we had this little booklet that went along and with, uh, which is part of, you know, what I'm gonna be able to offering all of the viewers, this little booklet in a, what looked like a gold bag with the drawstring and a, and a cassette. Yeah, it was kind of a cool thing. Well, well, now we have the CD, of course, which it has been enhanced. We recorded it at a studio um, uh, in North Hollywood. And there's a guy, a good friend of Bill Reichenbach's, did um, the engineering in the mix. His name is Gary Grant, who, if you know Earth, Wind, and Fire, Gary was lead trumpeter and did all the, the charts for earth, wind, and fire. So uh -huh. he, he did it for a, a labor of love on a two inch tape. And then we got, got it down to a, one of those little uh, digital things, but I still own the two inch tapes, the reels. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody did it. I mean, we, we got some money, but none of these studio cats ever was in it for the money. You know, it was something that, you know, and Reigenbach wrote some beautiful, beautiful arrangements, which unfortunately are not on the CD because I wanted the CD to only be the authentic stuff. Bill should 
Bill could probably make that other stuff available. So those are the kinds of things that the Gold Rush Cornet Band did that were fun. And lots of thanks to uh, Steve Sharpie and Bill Reichenbach and Les Benedict. With your experience with uh, those brass bands, did you ever bite the bullet and purchase your own period instrument? This is, uh, uh, I got this from Rob. Oh, cool. It's uh, a Diston 1880s Diston cornet, large bore, B flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful horn, uh, rare because it's a uh, large bore. Hmm. Um, it was in primo condition. I had Rob looking for it for me for a while. And then I have a, a French Courtois there, which is, um, it's not period, but it's early 1920s, which is incredibly rare, incredibly rare. It's, uh, that was the, you had to own that horn to, to play and to be a trumpet major in the Paris Conservatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a large bore uh, B flat. There's only about seven or eight of those left in the country, but this is my baby. I had a rotary valve E flat, which I um, donated. It was an okay player. I donated to a friend of mine at Humboldt State who who kind of set the way for him to to follow me in there. Well, Kent, this has been a great conversation. We really thank you uh, for your time today and uh, all the great information about all the California bands that, that you've given us. Uh, we think it's a, a great episode to, to throw into the mix. Um, where can people go if they want to find out more about um, the three bands that we've been talking about uh, in the episode or your book or the CD? Well, thanks. I, I really appreciate it having had the opportunity to do this, um, especially having been sequestered, I've been so lonely, (laughs) have a chance. Obviously I've been very shy. So, uh, but um, yes, the website uh, uh, is California Golden Brass Works. That's all one, californiagoldenbrassworks.com. And, that's the, the website, which, um, you know, maybe you can see later. But uh, I've got, a, uh, as far as getting a hold of the, um, the book, you can, you can get a special offer that, that really um, is quite competitive with what is offered on my Amazon webpage. Uh, they're uh, asking... It's not my price, but Amazon wants twenty four ninety five dollars uh, for my, my book uh, entitled Gold Rush Maestro, the Journal of August Wetterman. At $24.95, uh, I can uh, arrange just for 
your viewers um, to have the book with this um, really what I think is a really nice booklet with all of the program notes and anecdotal information and some stuff from uh, Mark Twain and other things in there that are you can't find in the book, can't find anywhere else actually because it's a lot of original research. And then uh, the CD for, for $20.95, the whole package, which I think is quite reasonable. And um, the way to, to find out how to order that is, is merely by sending me an email to kbrungis, so K is for Ken, Brungis is B-R-U-N-G-E-S-S at gmail.com. So it's kbrungis at gmail.com. If you'll send me a, an email, I'll tell you how you can get the book, booklet, program information, and the CD for $20.95. Such a deal. Yeah, wow. that's a great That's deal. super generous. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, guys. I appreciate your time. Thank you again to Kenneth Brungis for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. We really hope you all enjoyed uh, learning about and listening to music from the California Gold Rush era. Yeah, definitely. You'll definitely want to check out our show notes for this episode to uh, go more in depth on uh, what you heard. Uh, and as always, you can find us on all social media platforms and YouTube. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support the show. And we have a Teespring store if you'd like to get some physical merch that has like the show logo on it and all that good stuff. So links to all of that is up on our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. This episode's featured album is by the Gold Rush Cornet Band. Released in 1993, the album is titled Motherload, musical nuggets from the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, as performed by the Gold Rush Cornet Band. This is uh, the album that Kenneth was talking about that they recorded prior to their second appearance at the Great American Brass Band Festival. And this is also the album that you can listen to on their website. But if you uh, take advantage of Kenneth's generous offer of uh, combining the CD along with the program notes, which are rather extensive, they appear as more of a pamphlet, uh, and his book, then you can take advantage of that deal by going over to our show notes or by emailing Kenneth directly. Yeah, it's a screaming deal. Please reach out to Kenneth if you want to take advantage of that generous offer uh, and pick up some goodies. You got the book, the program notes, and the CD, and you can email him for that. And thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in the next one.